Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. For a number of years now, it has been our tradition to begin the fall semester with a convocation address that models expository preaching, but also utilizes and weds to that biblical text the life of a great missionary. And it is my intention to do the same this morning. So I want to invite you to take your Bible and join me in Psalm 142. Psalm 142, the title of the message or the address, The Lord is My Refuge plainly put on display in the life of missionary Anne Hasselton Judson. Psalm 142, verse 1 through verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to the name, to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Anne Judson, known by her friends as Nancy, rightly has been called, quote, the mother of modern missions. The statement is all the more amazing when you consider that she died from cerebral meningitis at the young age of 37 in the Southeast Asian country of Burma, modern day Myanmar. Her grave, along with the grave of her little daughter Maria, is located this day in Burma under what her husband Adoniram called the hope tree. Her life was not long, but her life was a full one in service to King Jesus. Psalm 142 is what we call a psalm of lament. It was written by King David, either from a cave, from a cave, either Adullam, the story there is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22, or in Engedi in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, This psalm could easily have been prayed by our Lord on the night of his betrayal and his arrest, but it is also a psalm that could have been voiced and prayed and written about many, many times by Ann Judson as she served our Lord and labored among the Burmese people for her and for their salvation. Uh, It is a hymn filled with great distress. In fact, the honesty of the cries for help should instruct us about what it really means to forsake all and to follow Jesus. Let me be crystal clear. Following Jesus is not a game. Following Jesus is a call to forsake all. 
and the hope that arises even in the midst of the difficult and painful circumstances that the psalmist experienced and that Ann Judson experienced should inspire all of us to greater faithfulness and greater trust and greater devotion in our Lord. There are three movements to this psalm that I will highlight as we walk through these seven verses, again, using the life of Ann Judson as our illustrations every step of the way. Number one, God hears the cries of your heart. This is the theme of verse one and verse two. Indeed, the first two verses flow with words of passionate verbal petition to the Lord, to Yahweh. I cry, I plead, I pour out, I tell. In other words, out loud, David pleads for, verse one, the mercy of the Lord. Out loud, he complains and tells his troubles to the one that he will later identify as his refuge, as his portion, and as his deliverer in verse five and verse six. Furthermore, the crying out of David is not a one-time event. Indeed, the crying out is ongoing and it is continuous. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on these verses, wisely says, we do not show our trouble before the Lord that he may see it, but that we may see him and see him for our relief and not for his information. Ann Judson, of all those who have followed the Lord's call to the international mission field, knew we have a God who anywhere, anytime, and under any circumstances hears our prayers. Indeed, she learned this early in her life and was sustained by this truth up until her death. Anne was born just before Christmas in 1789 in Bradford, Massachusetts. She was the youngest of five children. She was lovely, cheerful, popular, highly intelligent, and by all accounts, a very beautiful lady. During her first 16 years by her own testimony in her journals, she acknowledges that she seldom felt any real conviction about salvation. God, however, would use Hannah Moore's work, Strictures of the Modern System of Female Education, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and a visit to an aunt to begin to stir her heart and to ultimately bring her to faith in Christ. In fact, in her journal, she beautifully describes her conversion, and I note this at some length as she cried out and fled to Jesus. I longed for annihilation, and if I could have destroyed the existence of my soul with as much ease as that of my body, I should quickly have done it. But that glorious being who is kinder to his creatures than they are to themselves did not leave me to remain long in this distressing state. I began to discover a beauty in the way of salvation by Christ. He appeared to be just such a savior as I needed. I saw how God could be just saving sinners through him. I committed my soul into his hands and besought him to do with me whatever seemed good in his sight. Now, two things about that. Number one, that would be a great prayer for all of us to pray. And number two, she is writing this as a teenager. 
I know saints who have walked with Christ or been Christians for decades that cannot speak in such eloquence as you find coming from the pen of this teenage young lady. Thus, when I was enabled to commit myself into the hands of Christ, my mind was relieved from that distressing weight which had borne it down for so long a time. A view of his purity and holiness filled my soul with wonder and admiration. I felt a disposition to commit myself unreservedly into his hands and leave it with him to save me or cast me off. For I felt I could not be unhappy while allowing the privilege of contemplating and loving so glorious a being. I now began to hope that I had passed from death unto life. And when I examined myself, I was constrained to own that I had feelings and dispositions to which I was formerly an utter stranger. I had sweet communion with the blessed God from day to day. My heart was drawn out in love to Christians of whatever denomination. The sacred scriptures were sweet to my taste. And such was my thirst for religious knowledge that I frequently spent a great part of the night in reading religious books. Oh, how different were my views of myself and of God from what they were when I first began to inquire what I should do to be saved. I felt myself to be a poor lost sinner, destitute of everything to recommend myself to the divine favor, favor, that I was by nature inclined to every evil way and that it had been the mere sovereign restraining mercy of God, not my own goodness, which had kept me from committing the most flagrant crimes. This view of myself humbled me in the dust, melted me into sorrow and contrition for my sins, induced me to lay my soul at the feet of Christ and plead his merit alone as the ground of my acceptance. In 1806, at the age of 16, Anne would publicly confess Christ and marvelously during the same revival her entire family was also converted. But God quickly planted in the heart of this new convert a missionary heart, and somewhere around the age, now keep this in mind again, somewhere around the age of 19, she began to write these entries in her journal. March the 17th, probably 1809, having had some enjoyment in reading the life of David Brainerd, the pioneer missionary to the North American Indians. It had been a tendency to humble me and excite desires to live as near to God as that holy man did. Have spent this evening in prayer for quickening grace, felt my heart enlarged to pray for spiritual blessings for myself, for friends, the church at large, and she would use the word in her day, the heathen, but we would think in terms today of using the word the unreached or the lost. And so again, I prayed for my friends, the church at large, the lost and African slaves, felt a willingness to give myself away to Christ and to be disposed as he pleased. Here I found safety and comfort. Jesus is my only refuge. By the age of 21, she had become determined that she would be a missionary 
And this same desire was also true of a young congregational minister by the name of Adoniram Judson who was absolutely smitten and fell head over heels in love with Anne the very first time he saw her. In fact, on February the 5th, 1812, they would marry and 12 days later, along with Samuel and Harriet Newell, they set sail for India on a ship called the Caravan as the first commissioned missionaries ever to leave America. Indeed, I think we could say that God had heard the cries of Anne's heart in salvation, and he had also heard the cries of her heart to know and to do his will. Again, her journals give us a wonderful glimpse into God's powerful work in her heart as she opened herself up in essence to say, Lord, whatever you want, that is what I want as well. August the 8th, 1810, at the age of 20, I endeavored to commit myself entirely to God to be disposed of according to his pleasure. I do feel that his service is my delight. Might I but be the means of converting a single soul, it would be worth spending all my days to accomplish. September the 10th, the same year, for several weeks past, my mind has been greatly agitated. An opportunity has been presented to me of spending my days among the lost and attempting to persuade them to receive the gospel. Were I convinced of its being a call from God and that it would be more pleasing to him for me to spend my life in this way than in any other, I think I should be willing to relinquish every earthly object and in full view of dangers and hardships, give myself up to this great work. Do do we pray like that today? The way she thinks is so absolutely foreign to most people in our evangelical churches today. I will serve the Lord if it's convenient. I'll serve the Lord if it is safe. Praise God, that was not the way Adoniram and Ann Judson thought. A consideration of this subject has occasioned much self-examination to know on what my hopes were founded and whether my love to Jesus was sufficiently strong to induce me to forsake all for his cause. October the 28th of the same year, I rejoice that I am in his hands, that he is everywhere present and can protect me in one place as well as in another, he has my heart in his hands. And when I'm called to face danger, to pass through scenes of terror and distress, he can inspire me with fortitude and enable me to trust him. Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. Now, if I have been deceived in thinking it is my duty To go to the nations, I humbly pray that I may be undeceived and prevented from going. But whether I spend my days in India or America, I desire to spend them in the service of God and be prepared to spend an eternity in his presence. Oh, Jesus, make me live to thee and I desire no more. And then finally, blessed Jesus, I am thine forever. Do with me what thou wilt. 
Lead me in the path in which thou wouldst have me to go, and it is enough. Yes, God indeed hears the cries of your heart. Secondly, God also knows what you are going through. Verse 3 and verse 4, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Alan Ross points out that verses 3 and 4 contain the lament proper. Uh, David is weighed down by his trials, and yet even in his distress, he is confident that the Lord knows his way, that the Lord sees everything that he is going through. Still, what he is experiencing is almost overwhelming and beyond his ability to handle. Just note very quickly, verse 3 again, my spirit is weak, it faints within me. Verse 3, my path is paved with hidden traps. Verse 4, no one will stand up for me. No one takes notice of my situation. Again in verse 4, I have no place of retreat or, or rescue or security or safety. There's no refuge for me. Bottom line, verse 4, no one cares about me. No one cares for my soul. Now, if we would be honest this morning, we've all been there, haven't we? There have been times in your life where the weight of life and the experiences of life weighed down upon you so heavily, you did not think you could take another breath, much less take a step. That's okay. David was there. Our Lord Jesus was there. We should not be surprised when God takes us into the deep, deep valley to show us that even there, he is with us. Again, I would submit to you this morning that few people who have followed in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus knew this better than Ann Judson. Just reflect upon the following experiences of her life. One, on the way to India, they became convinced of believers' baptism. You say, how'd that happen? They read the Bible. <laughs> they read the Bible. And as a result of that, as soon as they got to India, they had to send word back to America and resign from the Congregationalist Mission Board and then quickly send a word to the Baptists, you have missionaries over here, send money and send it quickly. Secondly, they would be denied entry into India and forced to go to Burma. That was not on their radar screen, but it was in God's province and they would go to a country extremely hostile to Christianity. Thirdly, Harriet Newell, Anne's dearest friend, would die in childbirth, as would the child, at the tender age of 19. She never even made it to the mission field. And by the way, if you'd like to read more about that lady's remarkable life, I did a fall convocation on her just a couple of years ago. Fourthly, Anne's first child was stillborn. Fifthly, her second child, a boy named Roger, died before his first, first birthday. In 1820, after six years on the field, and, uh, Anne nearly died and had to go back to Calcutta and eventually back to America to recover. She would be separated from her husband for over two years. And so again and again, she was experiencing the, the trials and the difficulties that the Lord was bringing into her experience. Seventhly, when Anne returned to Burma in 1824, she became pregnant. Soon thereafter, Adoniram and fellow missionary Jonathan Price were in prison for 17 months. 
The conditions were beyond brutal. If you want to read about that, again, one of my very first messages was on Adoniram Judson, but also I would commend to all of you the incredible biography on uh, Adoniram Judson entitled To the Golden Shore, where it explains in unbelievable detail the suffering and the hardship of these 17 months. To say the conditions were beyond brutal is an understatement. He nearly died several times and he himself noted he even considered the exit of suicide. During this period, Anne gave birth to a baby girl named Maria, would plead repeatedly for her husband's release and daily walk two miles one way to the prison and then usually around 9 or 9.30 at night walk back to her home because in those days and in those circumstances, if water and food was not provided by those from the outside, then they would simply allow you to starve to death. Reflecting upon the difficulty of this time, she wrote these words, Sometimes for days and days together, I could not go into the prison till after dark when I had two miles to walk in returning to the house. Oh, how many, many times have I returned from that dreary prison at nine o'clock at night, solitary and worn out with fatigue and anxiety. Now listen to this. My prevailing opinion was that my husband would suffer violent death and that I should of course become a slave and languish out a miserable, though short existence in the tyrannic hands of some unfeeling monster. But the consolation of Christ in these trying circumstances were neither few nor small. It taught me to look beyond this world to that rest, that peaceful, happy rest where Jesus reigns and oppression never enters. During this particular time, she again became seriously ill and she also nearly died, as did little Maria. And in fact, as she again recounts the trials of this particular period of time of her suffering and difficulty, it really is hard to grasp what they experienced. Here's what she wrote. Our dear little Maria was the greatest sufferer at this time my illness depriving her of her usual nourishment and neither a nurse nor a drop of milk could be procured in the village. By making presents to the jailers, I obtained leave for Mr. Judson to come out of prison in his fetters and take the little emaciated creature around the village to beg a little nourishment from those mothers who had young children. Her cries in the night were heart-renting when it was impossible to supply her wants. I now began to think the very afflictions of Job had come upon me when in health I could bear the various trials and vicissitudes through which I was called to pass, but to be confined with sickness and unable to assist those who were so dear to me when in distress was almost too much for me to bear. Now listen. And had it not been for the consolations of my Lord and an assured conviction that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I must have sunk under my accumulated sufferings. God knows what we, what you and I are going through. 
And like Ann Judson, we must never, ever forget that any pain, any suffering, any trial must first pass through the hands of an infinitely wise and loving Heavenly Father. God hears the cries of your heart. God knows what you are going through. And number three, God will deliver you as your refuge. In spite of his dire circumstances, David is confident that the Lord will meet his needs. Uh, James Boyce, the wonderful Presbyterian pastor, helpfully identifies four things God was to David in verses 5 through 7. First, God is our refuge. Verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge. In verse 4, as we read, he looked around and he said no one was his refuge. But now that he looks up, he sees God and sees the Lord as his refuge. I cry out and shout, you are my refuge. You are my shelter. You and you alone are the trustworthy place of safety as my refuge. Secondly, in the second part of verse 5, you are my portion in the land of the living. Uh, the idea is you are my living inheritance, far more valuable than any earthly possession. Thirdly, he says in verse 6 that you are my Savior. Deliver me from my persecutors for they are too strong for me. David would say in my broken, weak, and humble condition, those who persecute me and those who pursue me are far much too strong for me. They're more than I can handle. Only you can deliver me. Only you can rescue me. Only you can save me. But then fourthly, he says in verse 7 that you are my liberator. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. You're the one and the only one who can set me free, literally, but I think also the figurative idea would be there as well. And in response, what will I do? I will praise your name and, don't miss this now, and the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And Judson would experience the truth of verse 7, but not in the way that perhaps we expected or hoped. Yes, there would not be a gathering of the righteous around her on earth, but I suspect there was a glorious gathering of the righteous around her in heaven. Eventually, her husband was released from prison, and they were reunited, but it would only be for two weeks. Adoniram would be called away on business for the Burmese government over which he had no say. And while he was away, Anne would die on October the 24th, 1826 from cerebral meningitis. The doctor said her body had simply been broken from the ordeal and sufferings of the previous two years and tragically little Maria would follow her mother in death six months later. Concerning her death, Adoniram would write to Anne's mother, the next morning we made Maria's last bed in the small enclosure that surrounds her mother's lonely grave. Together they rest in hope under the hope tree which stands at the head of the graves and together I trust their spirits are rejoicing after a short separation of precisely six months. I am left alone in the wide world. My own dear family I have buried, one in Rangoon, 
two in Amherst. What remains for me but to hold myself in readiness to follow the dear departed to that blessed world where my best friends, my kindred dwell, where God, my Savior, reigns. And it is reported that Anne's last words before she slipped into a coma, the teacher, speaking of her husband, is long in coming. I know I will die alone and leave my little one. But as it is the will of God, I acquiesce in his will. I am not afraid of death. Let me conclude. It really is difficult to summarize all that this incredible woman accomplished in her short short but full life. As I've noted, her story and writings alone uh, inspire us, and in fact, they mobilize untold numbers of women to go to the nations for the cause of Christ and the Great Commission. But let me summarize quickly her contributions to the cause of missions. Number one, she modeled magnificently joint ministry partnership with her husband. In fact, in a letter to her sister in 1812, she wrote, quote, good female schools are extremely needed in this country. I hope no missionary will ever come out here without a wife as she in her sphere can be equally useful with her husband. They were without question a true dynamic duo in ministry. Secondly, she was an evangelist, taught women the gospel, adopted orphans and started schools for children. Thirdly, she was a superb linguist and translator who learned both spoken Burmese and Siamese better than her husband. She translated the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Daniel, and Jonah into Burmese, as well as writing tracts and a catechism. She wrote a history of their mission work entitled A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burmese Empire. Her plan was to use the proceeds to redeem little girls sold into slavery. She was very successful. The book was very widely read. Finally, in an appeal to American women entitled Address to Females in America Relative to the Situation of Heathen Females in the East, she would close her address with these powerful words, and they're words I leave with you this morning. Shall we, my beloved friends, suffer minds like these to lie dormant, to wither in ignorance and delusion, to grope their way to eternal ruin without an effort on our part to raise, to refine, to elevate, and to point to that Savior who has died equally for them as for us? Shall we sit down in indolence and ease, indulge in all the luxuries with which we are surrounded and which our country so bountifully affords and leave beings like these, flesh and blood, intellect and feelings like ourselves and of our own sex to perish, to sink into eternal misery? No. By all the tender feelings of which the female mind is susceptible, by all the privileges and blessings resulting from the cultivation and expansion of the human mind, by our duty to God and our fellow creatures, and by the blood and groans of him who died on Calvary, let us make a united effort. Let us call on all, old and young, in the circle of our acquaintance to join us 
in attempting to millerate the situation to instruct, to enlighten, and to save females in the Eastern world. And And though time and circumstances should prove that our united exertions have been ineffectual, we shall escape at death that bitter thought that Burman females have been lost without an effort on ours to prevent their ruin. Ann Judson was a remarkable woman of God. Of that, there can be no doubt. My prayer is that our great God will multiply her tribe 10,000 times over that his name might be famous among the nations. May he, by his grace and for his glory, begin such a movement right here at Southeastern Seminary. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for how you have given us a legacy of men and women who indeed forsook all to follow King Jesus, not allowing the deprivations, the danger, even the possibility of death to dissuade them. Harriet Newell, willing to go, dies at 19, never even makes it to the mission field. Ann Judson goes and does an incredible work only to see her life brought to an end early at the age of 37. And yet, Lord, today there are hundreds of thousands of evangelical Baptist believers in Myanmar because of Adoniram and Ed Judson, because of Adoniram and his wife, Sarah, because of Adoniram and his wife, Emily. Lord, how I thank you that gifted and brilliant and talented, they were willing to say to the Lord, where you send me, I will go. And they placed absolutely no restrictions on where that would be. God, I pray that that would be true of my own life. I pray, Lord, that that would be true of every member of this faculty. I pray, Lord, that that would be true of every member of this student body. That those who today have yet to hear the name of King Jesus might hear the glorious gospel through messengers like us who follow in the footsteps of wonderful, precious servants of yours like Ann Judson. All for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit sebts.edu.